you ever get a feeling that's almost like a, this aching that feels a little bit like homesickness to feel God in a way that maybe at a previous time in your life you felt him, maybe it was last week, maybe it was years ago, whatever, but you get this feeling like you want the sun to shine again. Thank you, Jesus. And you get that longing feeling, and sometimes there's this feeling like you're reaching for it. Maybe you know that God has something in your future. Maybe you know that he's calling you to another step. The light is moving on down the pathway, and, and he's calling you to keep on going, to come into a greater revelation of him, to come into a, a greater expression in your own life of service to his body or whatever. There could be many things, but you feel that light kind of moving down and starts to get dim. You feel that feeling and you say, God, I want to get back there. I want to do what it takes to, um, to get out of the gray and back into the sunshine and, and to know again why I'm here. There's been a couple of things on my heart that I felt like might, might help us. Because sometimes I think we can get feeling a little stuck. Like we're trying, we're trying to get there. We're willing. We want to go where God is leading us. That's presumably why most, if not all of us, are here tonight. It's because this is what we want. This is where we're trying to go. We're trying to get closer to God. But we start to feel stuck. And so we try harder at a lot of different things. And um, I think sometimes our trying is like Christian and hopeful pushing against the walls and, and uh, trying to pull their chains off. Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so God is often not looking for a greater quantity of us trying on something that we think is going to work as much as that he's looking for us to open our ears and simply draw near to him and listen and understand what it is that he's telling us to do. I thought of this passage, you're, you, you probably remember this, but in Matthew 15, then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift, or can be translated as sacrifice to God, then he need not honor his father and his mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So they had set up a tradition where the children obviously were commanded by God to honor and care for their parents. And yet, if the children decided that, uh, I, I think I'd like to give over here instead of at home, then they would say, all right, well, there's kind of a compensation that goes on there. Because you gave over here at the temple, then you're exempt from having to give over there at home. And it's kind of a, it seems like a self-serving kind of tradition, really, doesn't it? for both sides, really, probably for the children who, are, who would rather go to the temple and, and pay a price than, than go home and serve mom and dad, you know, and also for the Pharisees who were probably collecting the money that was coming into the temple, it was probably self-serving going all the way around. And that may be perhaps an obvious example, but how many things are there like that in our lives where we say, well, 
I know I'm supposed to sacrifice. I know I'm supposed to give something to God. So I'm going to go give something in a place that will be obvious, where lots of people will notice. And um, hopefully that will move me on down the road and get me where I'm trying to go in my life. And yet it's ignoring something that God is trying to show us that might be a little more humble, might be a little closer to home, might be a little less noticed, but it's what God is telling us to do. And if it's what God is speaking, then that's going to be the key. No matter how small it looks, that's going to be the key, not what we conjure up as what we think is a great thing. Because our works of righteousness and all the good stuff we could think up for a hundred years is not going to be what saves us, is it? Not through works of righteousness that we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us through the washing of regeneration. So there's something that God has to do in our lives if we're going to move forward at all. So the only way we're going to move forward is if we can get hitched to his purpose and get close enough to him where we actually know what he's saying. So we we can seem very virtuous that we're trying to come up with something that will help us get closer to God. And we're thinking really hard about what could be a great gift that I could offer to God. Or maybe it'd be this or maybe it'd be that. Amen. And then we're wondering why we're not going anywhere. And you know this one. When Samuel came to Saul, and you remember he had gone out and, and gone to war against the Amalekites and done what the Lord had commanded him to, almost. And Samuel comes and confronts him and says, well, what about this? There's the sheep over here and there's this king over here that you, you let free. And he's got a lot of excuses. And Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. And then this passage from Micah 6. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To love mercy. That doesn't just mean love mercy that's shown to us. Amen. It means that we love the mercy of God and we want to become vessels of the mercy of God. And that we've got to walk humbly with God. God. We've got to be with him. It's not what we can generate from the fruit of our body or our labors that's going to convince God that somehow we're worthy of some gift that we need from him. It's going to be our obedience and our connection and relationship with him. You remember Cain's sacrifice? Cain was maybe a little bit in the position I'm talking about tonight, wasn't he? Because he knew that somehow what was needed was a sacrifice on his part. He knew that he was, that he owed it to God. He was supposed to give it to God. It even seems like that he wanted to feel the smile of the sunshine of God in his life. Because when he didn't feel it, when the Lord did not respect or honor his offering, he got all downcast about it, didn't he? He started to feel like, well, now what's the guy supposed to do? I mean, I've done all this. I've worked really hard. We've been, I've been working for weeks, no doubt, at these vegetables. And it's the best I got. After all, I'm a vegetable farmer. It's what I do. What can God expect from me? I mean, these are the best vegetables I had. 
And yet, for some reason, the sun is still not shining. God is, for some reason, not, not pleased with me. And why is this? Why is it that God is not pleased with this offering that Cain has brought? Is it because he didn't work hard at it? Is it because he didn't pour enough sweat into it? Those of you who, who have uh, raised vegetables and, and raised lambs, you might agree with me that actually vegetables can take a little more work than sheep sometimes, right? They can take more of a certain kind of, you know, let's get this done and let's tend this every day and let's, let's watch over it and take care of it. Sheep can sometimes, uh, you know, you give them water and food and they, they kind of take care of themselves in some ways, but there's something that, that requires a lot of work about vegetables. So what, what's the problem here? What is the problem with, with, with uh, Cain's sacrifice? There's apparently a problem with it because God didn't honor it, but he honored Abel's sacrifice, which, of course, there's nothing that will make, make us more upset is it, than when we see somebody else, God smiling on them, and I made a sacrifice too, and how come God isn't rolling out the red carpet for me? What was wrong with that sacrifice? Was it the quantity that was wrong? There was something about the nature of it that was wrong, wasn't it? There was no blood in his sacrifice. And however much sweat there might have been in it, there wasn't any blood in it. There wasn't not an acknowledgement of the kind of sacrifice that is truly needed if we're going to come before God. That there has to be something in our sacrifice that costs us something. Remember King David saying, I will not offer to my God that which costs me nothing. There, was, there is a certain kind of price that has to be paid in the sacrifice that we bring. Don't you think there's a different feeling in bringing vegetables than bringing a lamb that you raised? Have you ever cried tears over the cabbages that you picked? No. You know, Lord, I have beheaded these cabbages, <laughs> brought them before you, and it's just, it's tearing my heart out, but you can have them. You know, there's just something different about it, isn't it? When you've raised that little lamb, and you feel the finality, you feel the life, blood draining out of that sheep, and you say, but this is necessary, but this is, this is what it costs. And there's something about acknowledging the need for blood. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And there's something about the shedding of the blood. It was, it was an acknowledgement that if, if the life is in the blood, if my life is in the blood, then then the essence, the very, all, my core, a sacrifice that could possibly be effective to draw me closer to God is going to have to acknowledge the need for the regeneration of my very essence, that my blood has to be represented in this sacrifice, that somehow I have to be invested in this in the kind of way that says, this costs me everything, and I'm willing to give everything. This is not a sacrifice from my, my carnal nature. This is the total sacrifice of my life, of my will, of my future, this, is, this has a, a note of finality and totality to it. Let me read you just a couple other scriptures and I'll be finished. Luke 18, Jesus speaks this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like... This guy, this tax collector, I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I possess. So he's making sacrifices here. He's fasting. He's tithing. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be, exalt- will be exalted. What's the purpose of fasting? What's the purpose of tithing, for that matter? There's supposed to be something in it that humbles us, and yet we can take the very things that God designed and intended to humble us, and they become works of righteousness that we have done, that we're trying to use to somehow show God and other people that we, we mean this, we're, we're into this. I can remember a time when I was a teenager, and I went on a multi-day fast for the first time in my life. I was just telling somebody about this the other day. And um, I had never, I'd never fasted for longer than a day, I guess, before. But there were some needs that the whole church was praying about. And a request was made that if whoever would feel to, let's fast for three days and ask the Lord to answer us. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do this. I'm in. I'm going to do it. I'm going to fast along with everybody else. And so I did. Fasted for three days, and I thought it was pretty tough. But I made it to the end of three days. And at the end of those three days, we had a meeting uh, with our home fellowship. And everybody came to that meeting, and we had this move of of the Holy Spirit in the meeting and people, one after another people begin to share the things that God had spoken to them and the things that he had shown them and and uh, not just about the need that we were praying for as a body but that God had been purifying them and working in their hearts and changing their lives and I started to get a revelation because I was sitting there feeling like well I made it you know I made it all the way through this three-day fast like that was some you know <laughs> huge accomplishment that God was supposed to award me with a medal or something. And it suddenly started to dawn on me, I did not experience what these other people experienced during this fast because I was just focused on doing it. You know, and somehow this was going to leverage God or something. This was going to twist his arm and, you know, obligate him to move on my behalf or something. And I started to realize that, that wasn't supposed to be the purpose of why I'm doing this. And it's not the purpose of anything that we sacrifice for the Lord or for his people, is it? It's not the, the purpose for which God intends. And fortunately, God was gracious to me. And as I begin to realize it right then and there in the meeting, and I begin to come to repentance in my heart about it, and then I even shared with the people that were there, God is dealing with me. He's showing me that I did this whole thing for three days for the wrong reasons. But I opened my heart and I humbled myself and all of a sudden God started working in my heart and he did something to me right then and there. It turned out that in some ways I didn't need that three day fast. I just needed to turn my heart towards God and understand what it was that he was really asking for. That there was a, there was a key that he was trying to put into the lock in my heart and it wasn't that I was going to work harder or fast longer. It was that I was going to yield to him. That I was going to say, Lord, you have your way in my life. And fasting can be incredibly effective if that's the point of it. I think about the passages in, in Isaiah 58, I think it is, that talks about this is the fast that I have chosen. You know, not to just afflict yourself to try to show God something, but this is Dan's paraphrase, but to loose the bonds of wickedness, to let the prisoner go free, 
you know, to make, to, to, to get the cords of the flesh off of us enough that our spirits get light enough and our ear gets sensitive enough that we start to hear something that we weren't hearing before. But what's good about it, what makes it effective is that it's humbling us. It's reducing us. So any way that we can give ourselves to God that reduces the flesh, that gets the weight that so easily encumbers us off of our backs, it's bringing us closer to God. That's why we praise. That's why we worship. That's why we spend time in prayer. That's why we fast. I mean, it's supposed to be why we do all those things. That's why we serve. All of it is for the purpose of drawing near to God. What does he require of us? To do what's right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. To be in relationship with him, that's what he's looking for all along. And that's where the sun comes out. Sun starts to shine again. God's countenance shines again on our path when we do what's right. And what's right is to love him with all our heart and all our soul. You remember when, when the scribe came to Jesus and asked him, or lawyer, I think it was, came to Jesus and asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It wasn't, well, you need two turtle doves and, you know. There was, this is, the commandment is to love. And so the scribe speaks back to him and says, you have spoken truly. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart and all the soul and all the mind and all the strength. This is more. This sums up all the law and the prophets. And this is more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus said to him, when he saw that he had answered wisely, it says, Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. <laughs> if you keep that attitude that this is about relationship, this is about yielding your heart rending your heart and not your garments. If you can keep that mentality, that attitude, that perspective, that this is all about relationship, whatever pulls me closer to relationship with God, which is very often going to be through his people, as Brother Liad was sharing with us, whatever draws me closer, that's the sacrifice that I want to make. So if I'm working at it, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I've got it up in my mind that, well, I think that if I can just abstain from this evil behavior for another week, maybe God will notice. <laughs> That's not it. He wants our heart. He just wants us to be yielded. Psalms 51, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Let me read you one more passage. This is the one from Joel that I referenced earlier. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. And who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. And it goes on down, talks about weeping between the porch and the altar for the Lord to, to vindicate his name. And it goes on down and says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former reign faithfully, 
and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Thank you, Jesus. And we know this is the passage that, that Peter quoted as being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. What was going on there if it wasn't that God was bypassing their thoughts and their ways and their minds what were they called to do? What did Jesus tell them to do when he left? When he was going away, he said, it's expedient that I go away. And they go through this period. What do you tell them to do? Wait in Jerusalem. And so what are they doing? They go into this room and what's the, what's the great works that are being done? What sacrifices are being offered there? If it isn't simply that they're in obedience to his command. He told them to go to Jerusalem, so they went. He told them to wait. So they waited. So they're in the upper room and they're seeking and they're praying and they're united in one heart and one mind. And it came to pass that he was a promise keeper. He was a miracle worker. He was a deliverer. He had exactly what they needed and it was coming on the inside. It wasn't just, oh, that's very nice. You gave a good sacrifice. It was, okay, you're going to receive power. This is what you've been waiting for. This is the power that can change your life and make you into a vessel that can change somebody else's life. Thank you, Jesus. So it's not, going to be, it's not going to be through the works of righteousness that we've done. It's not going to be through some plan that we come up with that, we're, that is so well-intentioned that's going to show God that we're really serious. We just need to obey him. When he says, go to Jerusalem, go. When he says, pray, we pray. And it may be small. It may be the smallest thing. Do you remember the story of Naaman? You remember how he, he goes out? You know, of course, he knows he's leprous. That's the first thing that happens. We, we've got to acknowledge that we've got some kind of need that we're not going to get over on our own. If we think we're going to climb our way up into the answer to our problems on our own, we're never going to hear anything from God. But we can come to a place of acknowledgement like he did that says, I've got a need. And I, there is nothing I'm going to do about this need. I need something outside of myself to meet the need that I've got. So he, he has the humility to listen to his servant. You talk about an ear that's open. He listens to his servant who tells him there is a prophet in Israel. And if you just go there, I know he could help you. So he goes. And you remember how he goes? He goes with, he, get, he, he takes all this money with him. He takes all these changes of clothes with him. That He's, he's going to give all of this as a sacrifice, as an offering, as a gift. That somehow is going to hopefully buy his healing. I looked it up one time, and, and the amount of money that he brought with him was equivalent to somewhere around a million dollars in today's money. So this guy, he's serious. He's willing to give a lot for this. So he goes there, and he goes to the prophet's house, and, and yet the prophet doesn't even come out to meet him. He just sends his servant out to him and tells him, why don't you just go on down to the Jordan and, and dip there in, in the water, and, and you'll be made clean. And, you know, Naaman goes into a rage. Sometimes... That's, that's how we feel about it, isn't it? It's just like Cain. Here I went to all this trouble. And you treat me like that. You treat me like that. You know. And then his servant girl, once again. Not, well, it wasn't his servant girl. It was a servant that was with him. 
pipes up and says to him, if the Lord had asked you something great, would you have done it? And he says, well, of course. Obviously, he came prepared to give something great, right? He brought his million dollars. He, brought, he, he was prepared to do something great. And, she, and he said, well, how come when he asks you to do this little thing, just to obey him, you won't just do it? You know, and we, we can think of all the reasons why he thought that wasn't going to be the way it was going to happen and why that wasn't going to work. And Amen. And he says there, when he starts talking about the response that he got from the prophet, it says, the first thing he says is, I thought that he was going to come out and wave his hand over the place and there was going to be this big thing. The big problem is in the first two words, isn't it? I thought... I had a plan. I was going to humble myself. I was going to sacrifice. I was really going to do it. This was going to be the thing. And I, I invested everything in this course of action. And, and now the whole bottom just fell out from under me. What good is it going to do to go wash in a stupid, muddy river? Amen. God is not asking from you some big thing that you're going to prove how much this means to him. He's asking you to do what he's telling you to do. Amen. And to thank God when you can even be in the place where you can hear his voice and discern what he's saying. Could that be God? It sounds like he just told me to go down and just humble myself and do something stupid. Do something that doesn't even make any sense to my mind. I don't need a bath. I need a healing. Amen. Dip seven times in that muddy water and your flesh is going to be made clean. Amen. But something gets through to him, and you got to know that it had to have been more than logic. I don't think he just thought, you know, you're right. That makes sense. I'm being silly, aren't I? You have to know it cost him a little more than that. It's something about him as he started to head back to, towards Syria with all his leprosy intact. That something got through him, and he said, oh, God, I can't do this. Just what if this is the key? What if this is your promise to me? Can I really look at this little key that I think is impossible for opening this big door and say, that can't be the thing? I can't, how could that? Shouldn't I at least give it a try? Shouldn't I, shouldn't I just trust that I didn't come all this way for nothing? That in fact, the reason God was even willing to speak this little key to me is because I came all this way. He knows you're serious. It's not that all that counted for nothing unless you let it count for nothing. We didn't come here to go back. That's what they said to Moses. You know, did you lead us out so that we would just die here in the wilderness? No. He brought us out to take us in. But the same thing that brought us out is going to have to take us in. And it may not make sense. We said, well, God moved this way last week. Let's try it like that. No. Let's stick with him. Let's stay in relationship with him. And when he speaks that little key, let's do it. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let's use it. So he goes down to the river and he dips. Not once, not twice, not three times. If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And I'm going to believe God with every dip. Still there, still there, still there. And on the seventh time it came up and it says, his flesh was as clean and pure as a little child. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He wasn't sorry that he used his key. Amen. Unless you come to the Lord as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. A little child doesn't say, what? 
whatever. The little child says, really? And jumps into his father's arms. Thank you, Jesus. See